Hi, I'm Claire Popkin. Hi, I'm uh, Kim Miles. I'm Julia Liu, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. It is time for another episode of the Cinematography Podcast, sometimes known as Cinepod. Hey, uh, tell our listeners who you are and what do you do. I'm Ben Rock, and I'm a director sometimes, and I also edit. You can check me out at benrock.com. I just added a bunch of stuff to my corporate reel. Ooh. Give, ooh. It, a, give it a look-see. You must have a little time if you're updating reels. Uh, well, as it turns out, Ilya, there was a hurricane situation here in Los Angeles. I didn't hear anything about this. Were, were you here for the hurricane? Yes, I was here. <laughs> okay, so I was unaware of the, of the earthquake, even though... I was literally just sitting in my house when it happened. I didn't even notice it, so it must not have been that big of a deal. You're a true Angelino now if you don't notice earthquakes. You know, the first time I ever experienced an earthquake here, I was filming somebody and I was holding the camera with my hand and I couldn't keep the camera still. <laughs> and I was like, am I having a tremor? Am I am I having a seizure? No. There's no. an earthquake. But yeah. I was like, why is this image moving when I don't want it to? Oh, it's because the whole room was moving. Yes. But during the hurricane, basically, we were just stuck in the house, you know, waiting for certain doom to hit us. And, you know. It didn't come. It was mostly just very rainy. Yeah, it was rainy. Uh, I think that other places got it worse. But I actually oh, spoke worse. to someone in Cabo today, and they said that they were fine, too. Ensenada got messed up. And San Diego had serious flooding. Well, it was a much stronger storm. But hey, the people who are listening to us did not download this episode to hear us talk about the weather. All right, well, they Ilya, did hear us. Yeah. <laughs> T- talk about yourself, Ilya. What do you do? Who are you? What do you do for a living? I, we, fe- I feel like I'm a road comic. Hey, who are you? What do you do for a living? Uh, my name's Ilya Friedman. I have a company called Hot Ride Cameras, where we are in person right now. We're currently sitting in your screening room, in your awesome screening room at Hot Rod Cameras. Not more than three feet from each other. So, so we can record this podcast. We sell cameras equipment to professionals and aspiring professionals in the motion picture television and uh, creator economies you know it's sort of like a new media sort of world we've built six studios now several of them for creators mtv people you know it's kind of cool nice and we have some great people on the show today we've got not one not two but three dps who all work together to shoot the new michael j fox documentary called still and we've got kim miles Claire Popkin and Julia Liu on the show, nice. and we're going to get into that interview in just a few minutes, but we usually start every show talking about uh, something topical, something that's related to show business. Yeah. And we, we uh, call that close focus. We, we do. And now, close focus. What is our close focus today? Well, it, it's been, uh, you know, I mean, there's been uh, some ups and downs about the strike and, uh, you know, rumors of settlements and whatever, but nothing concrete has arrived yet. But one news item kind of did pop up, and I feel like it it kind of highlights a bigger trend in Hollywood to me, which is Bradley Cooper's new movie that he also directed and stars in. Maestro. Maestro, which is about composer Leonard Bernstein mm. and uh, Bradley Cooper, who is not Jewish. Got prosthetic makeup, a very awesome looking prosthetic makeup to make him look more like Leonard Bernstein, who was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I remember I opened up Twitter and uh, one day one of the trending topics was Jew face. What? Jew face. <laughs> 
And I was oh, like, what's going on? Oh, and man. it was people, hair on fire, that, <laughs> that Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper, who, who wore a prosthetic nose. Yeah. That he, he, it's not just the nose, too. He has like, like a, a whole forehead. Pro- yeah. He has a whole prosthetic thing going on in his face to make him look more like somebody. And uh, I have to say this, full disclosure, I was raised Jewish. Ethnically, I would consider myself Jewish, but honestly, you know, it, it didn't look like a Nazi propaganda video, you know, or film. They would have been films back then. Yeah. Um, it, it looked like- It would have been content. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nazi pro- it's, it's I Nazi loved pro- all of Lenny Riefenstahl's content that she made. <laughs> um, oh, she was the, the queen of content. She was, her content was spot on for the Nazis. Olymp- uh. Olympiad, what great content. Um <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I'm so glad that we could devolve from Jew face into Nazism. That's, <laughs> that's, no, well, I mean, I think that, that, that it's the obvious. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I have to say, uh, you know, there's definitely a push for greater authenticity mm. in our movies. Yes. So, uh, but won't AI bring that to us? <laughs> for sure. But like having uh, a Caucasian play a Latino character, for instance, as Al Pacino did in Carlito's Way, mm. as Charlton Heston did in Touch of Evil. Not something that would fly today. Hmm. And people sometimes when they're getting hyperbolic and fragile about this stuff will say, well, can a non-Jew play a Jew? And I'm like, "Uh, yes, Mm -hmm. I don't really see why they couldn't. And if they're saying that this makeup effect is anti-Semitic, it's the hero the romantic hero of the movie, if you watch the trailer, it's about the relationship with his significant other. And The whole movie is not mocking Leonard Bernstein. No. The movie is, is about how uh, how complicated and interesting he is. That's my guess. And uh, it was shot by Matt, Matty Lee Boutique. Oh, so, he's good. So he's one of, <laughs> friend of the show. Yeah, one, no, one, of, yeah. one of the best, and I love talking to Maddie. I, I would love to talk to Maddie about this. Yeah, and, and, and which makes to total say. sense because yeah. he also shot a Star Is Born. Yeah, uh, yeah. Also, so I thought it was very interesting today, and it was reported in Variety that the Anti Defamation League. Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. They came out and said that the makeup is not anti-Semitic. Well, so we all get absolution, and we can whew, we can shoo. we can we can <laughs> finally watch this movie without propagating Holocaust lies or something. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what. Thank uh, you, ADL, for for weighing in to yeah. make sure that. So, <laughs> so I mean, to me, to me, the issues that the hot button issues that this brings up. One is that everyone on social media is like sitting there in the morning, going like, "What am I going to be pissed off about all day today?" Mm. And this just happened to go across the transom and decide to be the main character of Twitter for the day. And uh, in, in case you're wondering, the rule is don't be the main character of Twitter ever. Um, or and, X. And, and the other... <laughs> X, I refuse. And the other thing is that we do have to have, I think, a serious or semi-serious talk about representation. And, you know, there's a push to be like, if you're going to have a gay character, you should have a gay actor play the, the character. And I agree, especially if you're playing someone who presents as gay, because if you're having a straight person pretend to be gay... Then it could it, turn into pantomime real, yeah, real quick. Yeah, yeah. It, it turns into yeah into a minstrel show of some kind. But you know the question then is like, well, could you have someone who's not Irish play an Irish person with an accent? And in my humble opinion, maybe someone will argue with me. I would say no problem as long as their accent's good. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, again, I don't feel like we have a problem with underrepresentation of Irish or Australian or British people. You know. So, so I mean. I feel like this question of representation has been floating around in the industry for a long time now, for a very, very long time. But 
it seems to me hot buttony. It only seems to really happen. Like, I don't remember anyone getting up in arms about, I could be wrong. Maybe my memory is faulty, but Brokeback Mountain. I don't remember that. Oh yeah. People were, there were, there were some people who were a little upset about Brokeback Mountain. They, okay. There wasn't enough openly gay actors playing, you know, playing. Well, I do think that at that, at that time, and it's funny cause it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. It really doesn't. But, but yeah. you know, it was like what, 17 years ago, Probably. something like that. Yeah. Where it's like, it was still uncommon enough for gay actors to be out in Hollywood. And I feel like today you wouldn't have the same problem. I agree. You probably wouldn't have the same problem today. But again, going back to the Bradley Cooper thing, I think nobody would complain, Leonard Bernstein least of all, about Bradley Cooper playing him. And in fact, supposedly the makeup design had been shown to all of his family and they had all approved it. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. End of story. There will be no further controversy about this. (laughs) It It won't be a Twitter blow up meltdown. So here's to you, Bradley, and your prosthetic Leonard Bernstein makeup. Hey, before we get to the interview, then we have to give away a book. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, junk film. Yes, yes, by Catherine Coldiron. We had her on the show a few weeks ago. All right, so pick a number between one and a hundred. I'm going to go with 43. 43. Okay. Congratulations, Scotty D.O.P., who posted on Instagram. Yay, Scotty D.O.P. Scotty D.O.P., Alana will probably be reaching out to you shortly to get your address so that we can send you your fancy new book. Congratulations. Congratulations. It's a really great book. I hope you love it as much as I did. Excellent. So let's get to our interview with the DPs behind the new documentary, Still. Woohoo. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by a trifecta of cinematographers. I I can't think of a time that this has ever happened before in the history of the show. I've got the three people responsible for all of the cinematography on the new Apple original film Still, which is the Michael J. Fox movie. I watched it last night. It was great. Uh, Welcome to the program, uh, Claire Popkin, Kim Miles, and Julia Liu. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having us on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's great uh, great to be here. All right. So I'm just going to dive right in. And whoever is most appropriate to take this uh, question on, please uh, feel free. How do you split up a movie, a documentary like this? How do you create a hierarchy? Did you guys work in different uh, locations, different scenes, different days? Were you all working there together? How did it work with, with the three of you? So actually, I think none of us met each other before, I mean, before now, after the movie's done. Um, So we definitely worked separately. Claire and I had done the documentary portion and um, Kim worked on the historical reenactments. Nice. Uh, And there are a lot of reenactments and there's a lot of interview and there's a really wonderful through line that kind of interweaves all of that together between the first person and the reenactment. So when you guys were were planning this out, a lot of those reenactments are period pieces. Was it a really conscious thought of how to make the period piece look uh, completely different from the modern interviews with Michael J. Fox? Uh, yeah, I can take that. I guess the, uh, I'd come on quite late. Julia and uh, Claire had already done the interviews and uh, all the factual stuff, let's say. Davis had already put a, a rough assembly together, knowing that he wanted to do to incorporate flashback narrative or scripted footage into the show, which is where I came in. So we had a, you know, from the footage that Claire and uh, Julia had shot, we had a very clear roadmap of what we 
needed and, and the slots that we needed to fill the gaps we needed to fill on the show. And uh, Davis had a very, he's the king of planning and he's also the king of uh, shooting off the cuff <laughs> on the day. So uh, he was very well prepared with storyboards and, and slugs and we knew exactly what we were after. And then on the day, he was gracious enough to kind of let us run with it and, and shoot it the way we thought, you know, looked the best. So That's great. And of course, uh, by Davis, you're talking about the director, Davis Guggenheim. That's right. uh, Claire, if, if you'd like to jump in and then Julia, I'll, I'll go to you next. Uh, how did you guys come to the early stage of the project, the Verite and the interviews? How did, how did you, uh, Claire, how did you come on board and, and what was your thoughts early on? Yeah, so Julia had started the project. I joined at a later later period. I've worked with Davis quite a bit in the past. We did a series on Bill Gates together. We've done a bunch of commercial work together. And and I think there's some shoots that Julia wasn't available for and that were on, you know, the West Coast. And so Davis asked me to step in for some of those and kind of, you know, we had a, a good shorthand already with the way we work and he kind of explained the style. And so I jumped in for a bunch of those to try and do Julia proud on it. But she had already sort of established the um, the main section of shooting, I think, the, the master interview. Uh, and so, Julia, let's talk about that. When you come onto the project, you've got this giant sort of like almost a retrospective of, of a man's life in front of you. What were you thinking it would be the best way to uh, to capture this visually? How did you think that uh, this should come together? And how much of this documentary, I know all docu- documentaries usually have some sort of guideline or script for, you know, people are going to talk about what and things are going to come in here. But, you know, in the early stages, it's usually very nebulous. How does your influence, how does your creative input come to be reflected on the screen? I think it starts with a lot of conversations with the director. So Davis and I had never worked together before. So it was trying to get on the same visual um, vocabulary and and try to get like achieve a shorthand because you want to talk everything out before you get on set together. So a lot of times we were just early on, we go on shot decks together and just look at shots we liked. And actually he had had some storyboards done of there was scenes that we shot just with Michael by himself that were like verite, but not. <laughs> and so those were like storyboarded pretty much. And so it was kind of nice. We, we could shoot them as if it was narrative, but we, you know, used um, reference shots to talk about the mood and the lighting. And there were, he had a really clear idea of like what scenes would, um, what kind of emotion he wanted them to evoke. So like this one's a little bit darker because this is like the downturn of the prognosis. And then this is a little bit brighter and, and here we are with family. So that was really exciting for me because I come from a doc world where I do a lot of verite, like real verite. And um, so to be able to kind of dip my toe into the narrative sphere, even though it was a documentary, was great. And the thing that I thought was most interesting, kind of a challenge, was that he really wanted everything to feel like a lockoff. That was a very early directive. And not everything is. I mean, that's that would be really difficult. But I think we had... We did a good job with that because there is a stillness. I mean, it's referenced in the title, in all the cinematography that happens in present day. And I think it's because for, I think, two reasons. Parkinson's disease, there's a lot of involuntary movement and tremors. But also, I think because it would be intercut with his archival footage and so much of Michael J. Fox's, I don't know, all the archival footage is so dynamic. He's almost like acrobatic in his way of moving that we wanted a contrast so that it was much more observational when it comes to the present day footage. Julia, I'm really glad that you brought up the archival footage because it's sort of like the, you know, the fourth person who's not part of this, the archival, like there is so much incredible archival footage that gets intercut throughout this entire project. And I was blown away at the volume and the quality 
I mean, and going back, which has got to be probably 40 plus years now, certainly back to the 80s. And I'm curious, was all of that available to you at the beginning so that you had something to play against so that you understood like what the juxtapositions were going to be between the archival and the, and the contemporary? Or was that sort of a surprise to you, too? You knew you had some stuff, but you didn't get to review it. How did the archival footage come into the whole visual tableau of this movie? Claire, you want you want to dive in here? Yeah, sure. Actually, so when I joined the film a little bit later, there was some, you know, rough assemblies of scenes where there was actual like archival, there were storyboards for the stuff that Kim would shoot later, and then there was real scenes. And Davis uh, brought me in to sit with the editor, Michael Hart, a few times, and we just looked at some scenes that they played out and how they cut and discussed what he liked, what he didn't like. And Davis Guggenheim is very prepared. He's always prepared. Like the last years we did together, it was, you know, everything was just like, here's what I want this to be, you know, and like, we'll let the real stuff play out but there's an idea he's, he's goes in with an idea and a plan i mean from the idea of shooting her things in a very kind of locked off you know way so i saw a lot of the archival that have been in there and obviously the film changed as documentaries do as you make it but there's a lot of like ideas of how we could transition our scenes in and out of existing verite so it might be a seamless cut even whether there's like a camera movement or a wipe or it's just tonally you know, how we're going to light the scene so for me at the point i joined i had the luxury of seeing that which made you know maybe my job a little bit easier at that point which then informed my approach to the scenes that i shot and for Kim, we're talking about the the archival footage and how that informs the work that you did on the movie. Did you get to look at much of that archival or see cuts before you then had to dive into your reenactments? Or did the archival footage help create your look or help you to create your look for the reenactments? How did the archival footage play a role for you? It was tremendously helpful in uh, determining how we approached the, uh, the scripted stuff. Uh, some of it, you know, was recreating Back to the Future and and um, risky business and that kind of thing. And other stuff that we shot was more to do with his childhood memories and stuff. And it had this more kind of nostalgic growing up in Burnaby sort of feel to it. So on one hand, yes, the archival footage was played a very heavy uh, role in uh, in determining how we did things. And on the other hand, we, we got to kind of freelance ourselves a little bit and be a little bit more idyllic with his memories, you know, his growing up stuff particularly. You know, uh, usually we shy away from tech. This is not a, a tech heavy podcast. We usually don't talk about what cameras and lenses you use. But because there was three of you and it sounded like you worked in fairly uh, disparate ways throughout the production, I'm a little curious. Was there a continuity of technology? Because you have very different looks and things going on. Uh, Claire and Julia, did you guys coordinate? Were you using the same technology and, and Kim were using something different? Or how did you guys handle the tech conversation between the three of you? Yeah, well, I think because of the budget, uh, we talked about shooting on a Sony Venice, but then we were like, oh, let's save the money for the glass. So we shot on the Sony FX9 and often single camera, only a few days we would have two cameras and then um, we shot with Size Supreme Primes. Yeah, and then and then for the scripted stuff, we were completely, we had our own sort of thing going. We were on uh, Alexa LF and uh, I think we had mo- we had movie cam primes, which are a set of uh, oh, sure. vintage movie cam built back in back in the 80s. And then never like I'd never heard of them before before using them on digital projects. Like I never used them on film cameras before because I never heard of them. But uh, they were supplied by uh, by every rental along with the cameras. So uh, LF uh, Alexa for us. Yeah, I, I think it's wonderful how all of the different looks feel so harmonious through this whole process. Now, 
you know, when you've got three cooks in the kitchen, tell me about your your final grade. Tell me, did you guys get involved in post-production or did one of you, uh, did each of you kind of like supervise your own sessions? Were you completely removed from the process? Was there a post-production supervisor who said, I, I'm handling this from here on out? How does the post go with the three of you into the project and making sure that what you're intending on the day is carried through to the end? Yeah, I, I was there for finishing, but but were you, Julia and Claire, were you guys involved in that at, on your end at all? I wasn't involved in the grade. Yeah, I was not um, involved in the grade either. I sent, you know, I would have my DIT pull a few stills each day and just I'd send right. them on, but um, that's about the extent of my involvement. Same. Okay, we had we had um, Stefan Sonnenfeld was our senior colorist on the show from Company Three. Oh, he's good. And uh, yeah, <laughs> <That's> an understatement. <laughs> you know, no, he, he's, he's very he's, good. He's, yes, uh, he's famous. He's yeah. seen it done a couple of times. Yeah. Right? Um, and he and Davis had a tremendously fruitful and long relationship. So so off we went to what amounts to a country club. Really, the the Company Three facility in Santa Monica is somewhere you <laughs> want to retire. It's just amazing. Um, <laughs> But Davis was there in attendance and Stefan was there. And, you know, we, we did the same thing. We know we shot with LUTs and CDLs on set. And then all of that information handed, was handed through to post. I thought it was great. And I mean, Stefan's an awesome collaborator. We did free solo with him and I loved working with him on that. So he's faces. Oh, free solo, that old thing. Yeah, <laughs> that one. And of course, uh, Davis, he's worked in a variety of, of genres over the years, both scripted and unscripted documentary, uh, perhaps best known for maybe uh, an inconvenient truth. Can you guys talk a little bit about the collaboration of working with someone who on a project which kind of straddles these lines of different styles? I mean, Julia, you were talking about how sometimes it was faux verite and it sounds like you were getting to do like your verite sections maybe with a second take then. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the faux verite and the you know, did it feel like reality television? You, you tell me, what, what was this like? It didn't feel like reality TV. It felt like narrative, in fact, because we had a stand-in, we had a full lighting team. And um, and these were only the scenes, that, I have to say, like only the scenes where he was by himself. And we also lit the everything, like pre-lit everything, but that's like pretty normal in Verte even. <laughs> but there were some scenes like when his family was involved with his children that it, we weren't able to block out because that would, you know, make everyone feel really stiff. If you're like, okay, this is your position here. And, and and I mean, we sort of tried to, but it was like a mixture at that point. Davis is a, is a really strong director and he has a very clear vision. And so a lot of it was just conversations ahead of time to figure out how to achieve what he had in his mind. And then there were some always happy accidents because it's always, you know, that happens with docs. So. I would say it's like, it's an interesting approach, you know, it's kind of like elevated documentary filmmaking in a way, like generally my approach working with him was we'd light a space and you let the scene play out as it will happen. Generally him and I, or he and I would figure out where we want to put the cameras ahead of time so we could be kind of out of the way and not influence the scene. So in a way it's not, it's not, it's not reality. It's not, we're not scripting the, the verite portion, but we're approaching it with a plan as Davis does everything and lighting the space so it looks nice as I'm letting things play out as it will. Yeah, it was, it was a nice way to do it. Very thoughtful. And I think, Claire, you had a lot of leeway with determining time of day and stuff for the, like, I'm thinking particularly of the uh, the beach sequence at the end, you know, the, like, oh, yeah. really? No, that, that last shot, that last sequence, it was interesting. Yeah, we had this, uh, we were shooting this place in Malibu. I'll just go off on a tangent here. And it was, you know, we had this, like, we've got a 15-minute window where we can not light the scene, basically. And so we had, like, you know, some HMI set up. Should we go after schedule? Because we probably would end up going after but somehow Davis and everyone else kept us on schedule. We managed to just like 
you know, shoot this thing in the window that I've been like, the light will be in the perfect spot. I won't have to put anything up. And so we had them strike out, you know, take the lights out while we were shooting the scene. It was kind of amazing. So yeah, great team to collaborate with. That yeah, shot is my favorite in of like all the doc scenes. That is my favorite shot with him and his son that you did. I mean, that like of all the doc stuff, so mine included. <laughs> Way too kind. <laughs> I agree. I think that's uh, that's the shot of the movie for sure. Uh, Michael J. Fox, to this day, one of the most charismatic people on this planet. Kim, I, I get the feeling that you probably didn't have him for most most of the work or any of the work that you did. Uh, Claire and Julia, let me ask you, is Kim just completely unlucky? Did you guys have so much fun just being around that energy and, you know, magnetism and charisma just, you know, day in and day out for the whole project? I got to imagine that that might have been like one of the best perks is just to be around it. But I could have it all wrong. But coming through, I mean, look, the thing was nominated for seven Emmy Awards. Congratulations to all of you. But tell me about the stuff that doesn't make the screen. Tell me about just the the working environment day in and day out and, and shooting this thing. I can share my favorite Michael J. Fox memory, which happened on the end of the first day. Uh, and I want to say also, like what you're saying, he's the most charismatic person. And it's really true. And I think he's such an icon that everybody on set, all the crew were so excited to be there. And like, you know, a lot of times the job's just a job, but that was not the case here. Like from the like gaffer to the key grip to every like down the line, everyone was a fan, you know, and it was very a very special energy on set. And we had filmed this whole uh, waking up sequence. He gets out of bed and then he does his morning routine, like brush his teeth and whatever. And we're in this small bathroom set for hours together, and we're all crammed in there, and we have all the lights and the gear, and it's hot and. Um, and he was such a trooper. And at the end of the day, you know, I said, I went up to shake his hand and thank him. And he just like said, very deadpan, like holding my hand, never forget. We shared a bathroom together. <laughs> and, and I was like, I will not It's like this, this day is burned in my memory. You know, like I was looking through the eyepiece being like, I can't believe I'm filming Michael J. Fox. This is like, I can't wait to tell my parents, you know, because <laughs> yeah, my parents are like immigrants from Taiwan. They do not know a single celebrity person's name, but they know Michael J. Fox. And so this <laughs> was like a really meaningful project to work on. So that's my favorite memory. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. He's so fast. He's just, you know, so quick witted. Uh, Claire, do you, do you also have a, you know, a treasured memory from this project? I don't know if I have a treasured like individual memory. I just think he was he's just such a gracious, positive person. It's really infectious. And the entire vibe on the set from everyone was just super positive and happy the whole time, almost to a degree that I've never experienced before. And I think that came from Michael and from Davis. He was just like a real joy to work with and a consummate professional. I mean, it's not every day you're filming a documentary about someone who kind of understands the angles and like do things in a way that's best for the camera as well. That's a luxury we don't always get. It rarely, I, yeah. I would guess. Uh, yeah, and and you nailed it. I never, we never met uh, one another, Michael uh, and I. And it was, you know, we were shooting in his hometown, and and he wanted very much to be there. So although his mom came up and uh, and while well, she lives in Burnaby, so she came over and and we hung out with her and showed her around, and she had a great time hanging out with us on set, which was great because it wasn't long after that that she passed away, which was not a great thing. But Michael insisted on us stopping. We had, I think, we had twenty 
days of shooting on the on, on the stuff that we were doing and i remember one day michael asked everyone to just like stop everything and they set up a big screen and he zoomed in so that he could talk you know one-on-one with all the crew members and thank them personally you know for coming out to help tell his story and stuff so you know it takes a real special human being to go out of his way to acknowledge you know the contributions that everyone's making to help tell his story well, I think that that definitely comes through in the in the documentary as well, too, that really what an incredible person and, and what an incredible story. All right. Well, I think that's actually a really good place for us to leave it. Claire Popkin, Julia Liu, Kim Miles. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was really great to hear about uh, your experience working on Still, and I hope it wins all the awards. Congratulations again on the nominations, and I hope that you guys can come back again and talk about whatever you guys are working on next. That sounds good. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that was the team behind the new documentary Still. Thank you so much for being on the show. Awesome film, by the way. Just a great film. And I can't wait to have you guys back, maybe uh, individually, and we can chat about other work and other things. It'll It'll be lots of fun. And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our famed short end time of the show where we talk about our obsession. Could be anything outside the spectrum of uh, entertainment industry. It could be, you know, technology. Have we ever done one that was like, hey, my short end is this one place where I got a hamburger? That would be a pretty pretty strong obsession especially coming from you but no we've, we've never gone that far but yeah we maybe we'll start that maybe we'll start you yeah, know br- yeah. really uh, branching out here so if we have an obsession that is not a movie media television mm. podcast something yeah, yeah all right so ben what is your fancy obsession this week so my my very fancy obsession is okay so uh slight background i was listening to the dana gould hour podcast some uh, it wasn't the last episode but the one before and he does this segment called true tales from weirdsville hmm. where he kind of goes into into the background it's usually something for some weird piece of hollywood history or entertainment history is it near needles california <laughs> Sorry. i don't know Anyway, uh, so he was doing, he did one about Peter Sellers Mm. and he made me aware of a movie that Peter Sellers did that I never even heard of. Mm -hmm. So for those of you uh, younger than me, which is probably most of you. Uh, Our our demographics probably skew a bit younger than us now. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Children, fetuses. <laughs> anyway, uh, Peter Sellers was the original Pink Panther, and mm-hmm. he's in uh, Doctor Strange Love, and he was uh, in the original version of Casino Royale. Oh yeah, a super weird James Bond movie that I don't actually recommend at all. But <laughs> but uh, did you see the party? Yeah. Oh, the Peter, Peter Sellers movie. Yeah. No, I have not oh, seen it. It's fantastic. Yeah. So Peter Sellers was like one of the biggest comedic actors of his day. And he made a pirate movie in 1974. He dies in like 1980, I want to say. It might have been 79. But he made a movie called Ghost in the Noonday Sun. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. And it was directed by Peter Medak, who mostly directed comedies, or he's still alive, but he directed the horror movie that got me, freaked me the most out as a young kid. It was oh, called wow. The Changeling with George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. So he was the director of Ghost in the Noonday Sun. Did that movie Changeling you? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. You were in a mood tonight, man. And it's, it's different when we're in the same room together. Yeah, it, really it is. is. It is. It's very, the, very the, different. The chemistry is different. So Ghost in the Noonday Sun, not a movie that I'd ever even heard of. And I, I stumbled across, like I was looking up something about Peter Medak because I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. And I saw that he made a movie called um, The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Oh, wow. And what it is. 
is in 2018, he went and retraced his steps in making Ghost in the Noonday Sun. He retraced his steps. He goes back to Europe. He goes back to England. He talks to the people who were around at the time. And the basic story of Ghost in the Noonday Sun was that Peter Sellers really wanted to make this movie with him. And as soon as he agreed to do it, Peter Sellers went insane. Oh, wow. And was a monster, awful garbage person to him from that moment forward. Oh, jeez. Right down to shooting scenes without him, trying to get him fired, doing all this awful, awful stuff. And at that point, Peter Medak had made The Ruling Class. He'd made a couple of movies that were well-regarded, but I think he had a new kid, and he needed he needed the job. He needed the money. And also, you know, nothing could have been more exciting than working with Peter Sellers, you know, who is... I, I don't even know who you could even compare Peter Sellers to today, you know, maybe like Will Ferrell or something, hmm. in terms of, like, yeah. respectable, huge, Physical, comedic yeah. person, you know? And I, range, yeah. At, sure. one, at one time, it would have been Jim Carrey, you mm-hmm. know? like Jim, sure. Jim Carrey was definitely that kind of actor. And so it's not Hearts of Darkness, the documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, because you're not really there at the time. You're there n- now, or is it 2018, as Peter Medak today is retracing his steps and uh, talking to people and seeing the contracts and seeing like letters that were exchanged between Peter Sellers or or executives who'd put money into the movie trying to figure out if they could fire him or how people were conspiring against him, you know, 50 years ago. And so he's a little bit emotionally disconnected from it, but you can tell that he's like haunted by what happened because he was a, a director on the rise and he kept going. He's had a career this whole time. He's never stopped working, but like this was going to be a humongous giant leap for him. And instead it ended up kind of like he was afraid that his career was going to be over Hmm. because, you know, if you get a chance to work with a big actor and then you shit the bed, you know, you might be put in movie jail. You might never get out of movie jail. Anyway, it's fascinating. And uh, by the way, like anything else, as soon as I hear about a movie like that, I'm like, I go look to see where I can stream it. And it was on Tubi for free. So you can watch it right now. If you have Tubi, Tubi is a free uh, streaming service. So anyway, uh, check it out. The Ghost of Peter Sellers. It's on Tubi streaming for free. And if nothing else, it's just interesting to see sort of the process that Peter Medak went through, you know, back in the day. And I think Peter Medak is like one of those kind of unsung hero directors. You don't really hear a lot about him, but he's done a whole lot of work with a whole lot of big people. And uh, if nothing else, check out The Changeling. It's creepy as shit. Mm. Anyway. It'll changeling you. <laughs> Sorry. Stop it. Sorry. It's so bad. God, it's horrible. All right. So you're a dad. You you understand puns now. Okay. Now, I understand dad jokes now that I'm a dad because I realize that dad jokes are our revenge. <laughs> dad jokes are pure revenge. They're, they're not intended to be funny. They're intended to kind of leave a mark, to kind of hurt. And it's like... This is what you get from waking me up at 630 in the morning for the last five years. Interesting. So, Ilya, what is your short end? It's sort of two things, but I don't think a lot of people realize because most people got rid of it years ago. But I have hung on to my Netflix DVD subscription. What? I received. Wait, they still do that? They do for about two more weeks. Oh, it man. Is, it is the end of an era. Maybe less. I want to say it's now, like... Now, tell me that at a certain point, they at least went to like a Blu-ray. Oh, yeah. They went to Blu-ray. You you oh, have okay. an, you have options for Blu-rays. Um, but, but really, the 
Wait, so somebody else could take that idea and just start shipping out uh, Blu-rays to people? Absolutely, and I expect someone will do that. And I, I actually I have think a, it should be you and me. I think we. I think that's our multi like ten thousand dollar idea right you, there. You might be joking, but I am a hundred percent serious. I actually really think that there is a business to be made. Maybe not on the national DVD mail service sort of thing that that Netflix did, yeah. but I think that a regional sort of business might actually might work really well. And you might have like a certain area that which you can go through the mail. I've, I've thought about setting up, you know, those little libraries that people put in front little of Little libraries houses. for DVDs. Yeah, I've thought about doing that with movies, because I have a lot of DVDs, and I don't want to get rid of them. You know, I've actually started buying Blu-ray 4K DVDs, and I last time I was down here in uh, Los Angeles, I took a trip over to Amoeba, which is still oh, a fantastic nice. place. I haven't been to the new location. The new location has thousands of DVDs that and Blu-rays that are under six bucks. Oh, nice. So, yeah, I, I picked up a few different things and brought them home, and even an HD Blu-ray looks significantly better than the 4K Netflix or 4K Amazon that comes through the inter well, it's, yeah, internet. It's less it's compressed. I mean, it's a different, it's a, it's a different compression, but it, it is. And uh, I got to say that for this last movie, which is probably the last movie that I will ever get from the DVD service, I don't know if there's time to ship me one and for me to send it back. It's I know this whole thing goes offline here in in the the coming you know fortnight, but. Uh, I got a movie that is so low res that watching it here on the big screen was a little bit painful at times. And I happened to watch a little behind the scenes and saw that they were using a PS Technic Mini 35 adapter, which anyone who was around in 2005... Oh, I, I remember it well. Yeah, knows it was a thing to turn little mini DV cameras that were shooting on mini DV tape into a format or the appearance of a format to have 35 millimeter film depth of well, field. I used the pro one on a, on a short film that I did. And the pro one was much, much better than the mini DV yeah, one. But it was basically focusing the sensor of the camera onto like a little screen onto which it was projecting an image that was taken off of a like lens, a, thir yeah. a 35 millimeter PL mount lens of, of any zoom prime, whatever the hell you wanted. Exactly right. Well, this movie is called Noriko's Dinner Table. Mm. And Noriko's Dinner Table is a Japanese movie from 2005. Never heard of it. It is a psychological horror film. And it is mm -hmm. quite disturbing. And yes, I would say that you you might enjoy it, but it is long. It's a long movie. It's about 160 minutes long. Ugh. And in some ways, I got to say, I'm, I'm not in love with the movie because horror films is not exactly my jam but it was interesting to watch it it definitely felt like a time capsule especially the time capsule from a technical perspective because we're not really used to seeing movies that look like this anymore it wasn't too many years later that mini dv became hdv which actually was yeah. high definition and then suddenly you know hdv kind of sucked though. it did suck but compared to standard def compared to the world of standard def and the even lower resolution that was standard def through this uh relay lens which is really what a, a ps technic mini 35 adapter was you're taking an image it's coming out of a lens onto a rotating piece of glass and then another imager is photographing that. So anyway, Noriko's Dinner Table, it, it feels in some ways sort of like a very long, well put together student film. Like, I mean, it does have very, yeah. very high production value. It does have uh, sometimes uneven performances, but it is disturbing. And if and and in sort of ways that you don't necessarily expect it to be disturbing. And uh, I was definitely disturbed by it. And that movie's going to sit with me. And I definitely feel like it's been influential to other people because I'd heard people talk about it, which is why I sought this out. Hmm. It's not available on streaming. The only place I could get it was was a DVD. I'm what old. made you get it if you're not into the genre? Well, I've been teaching myself Japanese for like the last 
you know, seven, eight years. Yeah. And so uh, I try to like test myself every now and again to watch stuff and see how much of it I'm absorbing and picking up. So I have a tendency sometimes to go down the path of like, hey, what is Japanese language and what might be interesting? And so Noriko's dinner table just happened to be happened to be that. So, interesting. And I felt like I did pretty well. I'm, I'm you know, certainly understanding more. And so, uh, you know, I'm giving myself another like 30 something years and I, I should be I should be <laughs> I won't be fluent. But I'll be proficient. I'll be able to, nice. uh, yeah, I'll be able to be proficient. I can already ask people like, you know, uh, where's the bathroom and fun stuff nice. like that. So, yeah, but it, it should get it should get better. So, so, so anyway, there you go. Noriko's Dinner Table, uh, part one of my obsession. And but really, it's oh, I probably you it's part one and it's 160 minutes long. No, no. And then but really Netflix, uh, the end of an era. I, I truly believe that physical media video stores, I think there's going to be a resurgence. I think it's going to be something across between a red box and a blockbuster. It's not going to be either. But there, I think that the idea of that coming back in your little library idea is not not too far fetched. We will see. But I think physical well, my media, little library would just be like sticking a library in my front yard and yeah, no, letting it, people borrow movies or take them or whatever. They'll probably never bring them back. That's the whole thing that, about little fine. libraries. You put it out there and you don't ever expect to get no, them I back. No, I think that's I think that's All fine. Right. If we could just you know swap around some movies, that'd be kind of fun. Yeah, uh, there, uh, Bill Murray tells a story about how he had like thirteen copies of Bottle Rocket at one point. He needed a little library so he could just put Bottle Rocket out there and people <laughs> could come take Bottle Rocket from him. Anyway, so Ben, I think that just about does it. If people want to track you down, where can they find you? Uh, they can go to benrock.com. Hey, go check out my weird ass uh, corporate work. It's not even a reel, it's just a page that has like full corporate stuff on it. I don't know if putting my corporate work up there is going to ever get me any actual work again, but uh, someone will enjoy it. Uh, yeah, check it out while I'm waiting to get my next movie made. Uh, you know, I'll make your next corporate video. Anyway, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me much of the time over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. If you need lenses, cameras, lighting, anything like that, hit us up. Uh, you need a studio built, hit us up. We can we can help you with all those things. You want to come check out a kick-ass screening room? Holy crap, that's true. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be rocking in here tomorrow night. We got a screening. It'll be fun. All right, so Ilya, who do we need to thank? Let's thank uh, our producer Alana Cody. Alana Cody kicking all the butt putting all of these uh, fantastic interviews we've got sort oh. of like stacked up now. There's we, we got one coming up that I'm super excited about. I can't wait. It'll be really great. Uh, and then we got to thank Ben Katz, our intrepid editor, whose uh, job I probably did not make super easy today, but I appreciate well, you. We made it a little easier by doing it in the same room, so he's only going to have to deal That's with true. He doesn't file. have so many tracks. He has to yeah. stack and layer. Much, and, much easier. And we did it in this quiet space, so he doesn't have like airplanes flying over. That's true. Or, like, Dogs you know, barking. Compression. Oh, owls. Uh, owls. That's a peacock. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do have a peacock <laughs> problem in my neighborhood. <laughs> and we got to thank Kay Zalatrachi, who is making the underscore to the music in this episode, the underscore and, to the music. No, in all episode. And in, in every episode. I, I really think we got to start needling him, though. Start pushing him to get us uh, some more music because, boy, wouldn't it be great to have music right now underneath what we're talking about? We can do it, yeah. And I think we should have ad break music, too. Ad break music. I'm into it. Mm. All right. Kay's, if you're listening, Think about that ad. And I know music. you are. <laughs> For years we thought he wasn't. And, and then the, it turned out he'd been listening this whole then time. Then he'd been listening this whole time. So crazy. Yeah, it was great. Could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> anyway, Ilya, that's about that about does it. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>